students did what they needed to do and they did it well. They did it well. There weren't, there, there wasn't um, behavioral issues as a result to wearing masks. There wasn't backlash by students for wearing masks. I have no reason to think that we won't be as successful this year. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Less than a week into the school year, COVID outbreaks are being reported in schools around the state. Many parents and educators are clamoring for Governor Scott to mandate the wearing of face masks in schools, but he has repeatedly declined to impose such mandates, only recommending that students and educators wear masks. It has been left to each school district to decide for themselves whether or not to mask. Educators now find themselves on the front lines as they manage a pandemic with minimal state guidance and try to resist being dragged into the culture wars around masking. On Sunday evening, Bridget Neese, superintendent of the Harwood Unified Union School District, which encompasses six towns including Waterbury and Waitsfield, was notified that a student at Crossett Brook Middle School was positive for COVID. By Monday, 23 middle school students were in quarantine. I spoke to Nice on Tuesday and began by asking her to explain what is happening in her school district. A lot is happening right now because we are trying to deal with each day's crisis as it arises without the pre-planning and the preparation that we were afforded last year. So none of us anticipated opening schools this year with a Delta variant that was at least appearing to be pretty spread already within the Waterbury community, in other communities, and pretty quickly among uh, children, students. So we did not um, spend the number of weeks that we did last year working. We did not start after Labor Day We did not set up remote plans because we were told that we really couldn't use those or count any kind of a hybrid model. So as we start to have these cases, as we did with Crossett Brook, we were contact tracing on Sunday night and one positive case led to 23 students in quarantine. And this is Crossett Brook Middle School. Crossett Brook Middle School. And that was my Sunday evening. And then yesterday, Monday, to work I come and I'm getting a number of messages with my superintendent's group and we're working back and forth only to find out that Summit Street in Essex, Shoreham Elementary, St. Albans Town Ed Center, Twinfield closed, um, grades I think pre-K to six, um, East Montpelier is in remote for the week One school um, in Montpelier has got a class in quarantine, and I'm pretty sure that by tomorrow morning I'll wake up and there will be a number of of those. So our biggest challenge is that what we were told in the short memorandum was that schools would be open for five days a week. All staff will be working their regular ordinary schedules like they did pre-COVID. We would not have remote learning plans for students. If they're in quarantine, they'll be treated as though they're sick. And during that time, they will get work from their teacher, asynchronous work from their teacher in the same way that they did pre-COVID if they were out of school sick. 
that's coming up short. That's not going to be, you know, an effective solution. When you have 23 students that need to be out a minimum of seven days and maybe 14 and don't have robust learning. And if you play that out, they could then go back to school and within a short period of time, become a close contact and go again into quarantine. We are very worried as superintendents how we're going to manage the learning loss from last year and preserve the learning for this year. And right now we're trying to figure out what to do about that. I wanna I wonder if you could share what it means for you as a superintendent on a Sunday night to find out about a positive case. Um, what do you have to do at that point? And and also how did this student even find out they were positive? Well, students will test or families will test students uh, for COVID for all sorts of reasons. Maybe they're symptomatic. Maybe they've been told that they've come into contact with someone else who tested positive within their community. There's all kinds of reasons why parents might take their students for a COVID test. They get the test results. They, uh, they find out their student is positive and they call the school nurse, they call the school principal and say, John is positive for COVID. You might want to know that. So we almost always hear from our parents long before we hear from the Department of Health. But we might get a call from the Department of Health saying, you now have a positive student or you now have a positive staff member. That can happen at any time. In this particular case, it was about quarter of four on Sunday. And we have a crisis team and the superintendent is sort of command for that team for all of this. And I gather with that school principal who has to get located and found, the school nurse who has to get located and found, the COVID coordinator, and ultimately our, our staff in central office that does what we call our blast out to all of the news media and publishes it. So no matter where we are or what we're doing in our lives, there is no other way than just to drop all of that and this becomes front and center. So for example, my husband and I had dinner plans to go out to the islands and um, have, a, have a nice dinner and all of that got canceled and stopped and you, you need to do this when that happens. Um, you're also sad because you have feelings about that like, oh dear, you, know, you hope your student is going to be okay you have worry, you don't know how big your quarantine list is going to be. Um, honestly, we got lucky. A quarantine list of 23 is much smaller than in other, other places. Our student wasn't on the bus, so that is a rule out. Um, we knew exactly who the student played with at recess, and you know that was um, also a rule out. And we do the contact tracing and parents start to, we, we start calling those parents right away. And the, con the contact tracing list can grow. The 23 students are just those that we identified. VDH will work with the family of the positive student and there may be additional close contacts that we wouldn't know about because they wouldn't be our students. Right. And that's how that process goes. I wanna talk about the letter that your you know, beginning of the year letter was not the ordinary letter that um, you probably have spent most of your career writing when you welcome people back to school. 
Uh, you wrote this, quote, I am hearing direct reports of personal fear from principals and superintendents. One of my superintendent colleagues has received a death threat. Some principals are receiving letters from groups threatening to storm the schools on the first day. Leaders are receiving voicemails from very angry community members screaming at them. Today, when seeking out advice and support, we were told to access law enforcement, close quote. Tell me what you were hearing uh, prior to your sending that letter from your own community. Well, I didn't have as many calls as others. And I had a state meeting with all of the superintendents in the state. We share our, our current dilemmas. And that was one of them. And people were giving their case studies examples. And I've done this a long time. I've been a superintendent now for 13 years. I was a building principal for 20. And I was just... Um, horrified at the accountings of others. In my own case, I had my fair share of calls, usually unnamed. People would hang up on the other end and they would shout into the phone things like, there you go again with one of your letters. You robbed my student of a year of learning last year and you're doing it again. You can't leave our district soon enough. Things like that, um, that would be you know, considered harsh. Um, parents that would yell, I don't know who you think you are, but my student's not going to wear a mask to school and you can't stop stop them or stop us from coming to school, those sorts of things. And, um, you know, that's really not okay. I, I think I want everyone to understand that none of us have a crystal ball. We're not all experts in everything. We're all doing the best we can. And we take very seriously what we do in terms of keeping kids safe. That's emotionally and physically. And now I'm going to add academically because in year two, we are learning institutions. And given the learning loss that we've seen from the prior year that we're now needing to assess, but we don't necessarily have the kids to this sort of dysfunctional situation we have with this world of quarantine. And so let's what... use Crossing Brook for example, if I might. If 23 students are missing from a team, those 23 students are home for seven days, maybe 14, without a robust education, no matter how hard we try. And there is no there, remote teaching, as you there is, noted There is earlier. not right now. There is no remote teaching. It's just works at home, right? So the teachers that are still at school, in the open school, teaching those classes, do not have 23 of their students in the class. So if you're doing a science experiment, for example, with the students that are there, but you have that many students missing, that teacher is in a horrible position in trying to implement the curriculum equitably all year and keeping kids moving in, a, in the pace that she needs them to be. So it, this is where our dilemma lies right now, and the admin team will be working on this dilemma Thursday to try to figure out what, if anything, we can do to try to mitigate this. This is a big concern for us. What are you seeing in terms of learning loss? I can't say that we can identify that because we need to have the students with us, do some screenings, collect some data, and measure to the best of our ability what we think that learning loss might be, and also what we think their social emotional learning loss might be. Um, but we can't do that. We're starting that and we have a plan for that. But um, this interruption of quarantine and sort of sweating out the next positive case and how big will the spread be um, is taking front and center right now. Uh, 
you know, for those of us who watch uh, with a certain degree of horror what's going on around us with the fights over masking, uh, you know, in Vermont, there was the news that in Franklin County, a school board meeting um, was interrupted by people shouting at a pediatrician from UVM who was there to explain uh, the dynamics of COVID and how to protect yourself. What's been your observation about masks and students? Are students um, disturbed, you know, overly disturbed or in some way hurt by wearing masks? I believe that every, I, I, I would hesitate to answer that question as though I would be the sort of know-it-all of our students hurt by wearing masks. I can tell you that I have not had significant, or I, I myself have not had any complaints about my students wearing a mask, and this is the result of that student wearing the mask, and therefore it's, it's a negative thing. Our students are very resilient. What we learned last year was maybe it would not be a first choice. I'm sure we would all rather not wear them. But understanding why we are wearing them, students did what they needed to do and they did it well. They did it well. There weren't, there, there wasn't um, behavioral issues as a result to wearing masks. There wasn't backlash by students for wearing masks. I have no reason to think that we won't be as successful this year. Students were kind and caring. They understood why we were doing it and we had good success with that. Mm. Well, so I mean, in a cost benefit analysis, if it means the difference between getting to stay in school in person and having a robust experience and not canceling athletic events and, the, and such that they're counting on and participating in band, then I think that that's a positive, even if we would rather not wear it. Harwood has one of the strictest uh, sets of mandates uh, around COVID. You've mandated that all staff must be vaccinated or tested weekly, and that every person must be masked inside the schools. Are you able to say what proportion of the staff um, has been vaccinated? And overall, what's the response been to these requirements that you've issued? I can't give you exact numbers today, but I am collecting it. So, you know, we've only been in school for just a few days, and we are looking at vaccination cards and we have spreadsheets and we are collecting that data. We estimated where we thought we were school by school and it was just an estimate from what principals know in their mind. And we estimated that maybe we would have 25 staff members across the entire district that were unvaccinated. And again, that was an estimate. Um, and how, how many staff members are in the district? probably about 375. So we're talking about something on the order of 7% or so that might be unvaccinated. Yes, maybe. Hmm. And um, so you asked me, I think, what was the response to that? I think I have one medical exemption that's come through. I've had no staff pushing back with the requirement. Um, I think people understand I hope that continues, but as of today, I do not have any pushback from HUSD staff and faculty on this topic. You uh, have worried uh, publicly and privately about staffing challenges uh, in this environment where there's so much extra pressure being put on educators. Tell me what's going on in your district with staffing challenges. 
every district is struggling mightily with staffing challenges, but so are our childcare providers. So are our restaurants. So is the hospital. My understanding from folks I know and talk to, we are all struggling with staffing challenges. I think that we are still looking for somewhere between 12 and 14 paraeducators. We need two special educators, a world language teacher um, at this point, and possibly one or two people in food service. In addition to that, one of the major mitigating strategies in order to keep our schools open is their surveillance testing model. And we are trying to be at the top of that. We were last year, we were one of the first to bring that on, work with the National Guard and the state to administer that. And I have an excellent uh, COVID coordinator in Nurse Conyers. Explain, explain what you mean by surveillance testing model. Well, the way surveillance testing will work is it's voluntary. So districts need to sign up for it. In order to sign up for it, you have to be able to staff the requirement, which I'll kind of get to in a minute because it's changed this year. So it's going to be more staff intensive for us. And we would like to offer it for all buildings in all schools, not just some. And I believe that there will be schools across the state that really want to participate, but won't be able to because of staffing. So it will be, it, we are going to conduct it if we're, if we're able to pull it off every Monday, it will run from eight to 12 and all it's voluntary. All students from the great age five and up are able to be tested and our staff, whether they are vaccinated or not. So all students five and up, all staff are able to be COVID tested every Monday, whether they are vaccinated or not. We anticipate a very high percentage rate of participants. When you look at the spread in the community, um, what we anticipate, the nurses and I, would be that that will be a peace of mind. Most folks will participate. So that will be a lot of people and students to put, you know, staff and students to put through. And in order to do that, some of the protocols have changed this year. I don't know all the whys. I was told that possibly it's been contracted out, it's changed in some ways. And in some of those ways, it's become more labor intensive. So for example, last year, we used to just print labels and we would put them on the test, which we had down to a science in terms of how quickly we could do that and how we would go about it. This year, Allison is explaining to me that they need to, for every single test, they have to write the multi-digit barcode by hand and the name of the individual by hand. That's going to take uh, considerably more time. It increases the rate of error for sure. And we're concerned about that. So I'm getting in the weeds. I'll stop there. Just, I wanted to show you how complex it is. But in order to do that, I've created a new position called surveillance testing assistant. And that position pays $40 an hour. We're going to pay for it out of our ESSA federal funding. We're looking for volunteers in the community to come and sign up for every Monday. We're going to put, provide them a training and we need at least two people per building to do this successfully every single Monday because the nurses do not have the capacity to do it by themselves. And they'll also be addressing or tending to sick children, 
children in isolation, students in isolation may need to go home, making parent contacts. So they cannot do both. And we do not have enough paraeducators to pull from regular duties to help to support that. Let um, me uh, just uh, ask, is the state doing enough um, right now in, in its management of COVID and its guidance to school? I'm going to plead the Fifth Amendment, David, on the word enough. Um, I suppose no one could ever do enough when you're in a tough situation like this. Do I believe that they absolutely could do more? Yes, I do. And what do you yes, wish do. they would do? What would help you as an educator? Well, um, the guide, there really wasn't any guidance. The guidance, I think, is pretty well known now around the state. It was a two-page document, and it basically says schools will be open five days a week for in-person learning. There's another document that came out around the 19th or the 25th of August that reminded us what the statutory attendance requirement is. So what's keeping us all up at night is that, so for example, the school I believe it would be East Montpelier, but whichever one was on the list where they had enough positive cases that they had so many students needing to be in quarantine, they moved the entire school remote for the week. As superintendents, we don't know right now, not with certainty, whether those days are counted in the 175. It could be true that they would have to make them all up next year. Why? Because the document says that remote and hybrid operational dispositions are no longer allowed as operational modes available to the district. And I'm reading that right from the document. So the, the guidance that we have at least to date is five days in person, no matter what, with students going into quarantine. Again, we have no plan for if they go into quarantine, how could they get any remote learning? There aren't any teachers to give them that remote learning. They'll be teaching. Right. And I think that one of the things that I need to figure out a way to communicate better to parents is that if I was a parent, I would believe this too. Well, you did it all last year. It's like a switch. Just turn it back on, you know, put, put remote learning. That isn't how it works. It took weeks of preparation to build that model and hubs. And we pulled staff away from regular duties and assigned them to a remote academy. So it, I won't spend a lot of time on that today, but it's a very complicated beast that we built over a two year, two, excuse me, two week period, didn't start until after Labor Day and able to being able to roll that out. So teachers don't have those lesson plans ready, nor do we have our machines ready to go for that kind of learning. And we didn't put that in place because we were told we wouldn't be able to count those days and that if students go into quarantine, they just teachers just send work home as if they were sick. That will be woefully inadequate for learning for students that are going to be out seven to 14 days, potentially more than a few times during the course of a year. So this is where the guidance is needed. This is where we would hope to get more flexibility and some clarity on are we making those days up in June? So if today I get a positive case, and I need to close a school because the contact tracing for it is so large, will I get to count that day for that school? Um, what would be my workaround? My workaround to say, I'm putting all of the students within the school in quarantine. Is it a, is it a game of semantics? I just say they're all in quarantine and then I get to count the day. I, we don't know. We have a lot of answers, uh, a lot of questions, I'm sorry, around that.
What's your biggest concern as we begin September for the school year ahead? I don't have a crystal ball, but from where I sit, there is going to be significant spread. And not only we will not only will students not be in school that are COVID positive, I'm worried, of course, as every superintendent about how ill they might be. Um, I'm worried that we won't be able to contain the spread because the Delta variant is so virulent, um, even outdoors, apparently. I'm concerned that the learning loss after what kids experienced, students experienced last year is just going to be too significant. And I don't have a good solution for that yet. But I don't see where students can miss 7, 14, 28 days through the course of the year every time they're on a contact tracing list. Recess, for example, is problematic. Friday night, I was working with the COVID coordinator. She had received some new information. We don't have seating charts at recess. I think most people would understand that, right? So if we cannot identify because of the Delta variant being as strong as it is, if we cannot identify exactly who students play with or hang out with during recess, she was telling me on Friday that we would have to pull, put the entire recess group in quarantine. That's a lot of students. All right. We don't have distancing. Um, we, we obviously are taking every precaution during lunch and snack because masks come off. We're understanding from other places that this has happened throughout the country that even removing a mask for a short period of time um, could potentially result in a transmission of Delta. So we don't, you know, we, we, we I certainly don't wanna be pessimistic. We're going to always do whatever it takes we're going to keep kids as safe as we humanly can. We're going to try to anticipate what's coming down the path and plan for that. And we're gonna do that collaboratively as a strong administrative team. But we have CDC guidance, VDH guidance, WHO guidance, um, some minimal state guidance, and it doesn't necessarily all agree. And each superintendent is really feeling whether others believe that's justified or not, that we're just out here alone trying to determine what we need to do with what our community will um, support and what the spread looks like in our own community. Okay, well, Superintendent Bridget Neese, uh, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me, David. Bridget Neese is the superintendent of the Harwood Unified Union School District.